You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. It's Friday, March 27th, and today we're speaking with Keith Black from the Kaya Association and Paul Kooner from CASA. James Brown is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome, everybody. This is James Barron with uh, CASA, and uh, we're here to speak with Keith Black from the Kaya Association and also Paul Kooner from our uh, very own CASA staff. And uh, today we're going to get views and insights on today's alternative investment market uh, from... uh, from these two folks. Keith, of course, has decades of experience with options trading, uh, hedge funds, real estate, private equity, the Yale endowment model, and everything else that's alternative. And Paul, uh, like I say, on our staff, has recently taken the Kaya Level 1 and t- made the move into into alternatives in earnest. So uh, we'll start off with a bit of intro. Keith, uh, if you could give us your abridged intro, please. We'll, uh, we'll go from there. Uh, thanks, James, and welcome, everyone. So uh, now I work with uh, the Kaya Association. Uh, so I'm one of the authors of the Level 1 and Level 2 textbooks, and I generally keep up with uh, alternative investment markets, and uh, we've been blogging now at uh, allaboutalpha.com. Great, thanks. And then, Paul, what's your background? Hi, James. Hi, Keith. So prior to joining CASA, I was an advisor where I serviced households. I had my own book. Um, So I did wealth management and did some insurance as well. Uh, During that time, I decided I wanted to go and do my CFA. So I finished that last year. And in March of this month, I wrote the Kaya Level 1 exam. Excellent. Thanks. And so, well, quick plug. Uh, Keith, we know your answer. But Paul, do you think people should take Kaya? I mean, I took it back in 06, but I imagine it's changed in the last... uh, is that 14 years? Yeah, I'm a huge advocate for Kaya, and I think everybody in the financial sector should look into taking it and be taken. I'm sure everybody has a bit more time right now. Um, alternatives investment should not be considered alternatives. There should be in everyone's portfolio. There's definitely a lack of education in the market, and Kaya does a great job fulfilling that need. It's funny, when I speak to other in the financial sector they've done their CFA and they work at long only shops and some of them are even associates or portfolio managers just coming up of course and they can't tell me the difference between a custodian and a prime broker um, through the Kaya you learn about sectors that are hardly ever touched upon in any other educational material out there including the CFA um, there are some real assets and true diversifiers that everyone should know of and should incorporate in their portfolio Right. Well, maybe Keith, let's start with something that people probably have heard about. Robert Reich and his, uh, I guess it's becoming his famous, com- famous comment that in, in the, the, well, this is maybe a week or so ago, the markets were down about 20% and the hedge funds were down uh, something like nine. And I saw one of your recent charts that saw managed futures were off like 0.8. Uh, so therefore, those managers must have had insider information. Uh, how, how do you respond to that? Like, what, what, do, you, what do you think of that? Well, hedge funds by design are less volatile than stocks, James. You know, they take both long and short positions. And so over long periods of time, hedge funds have about half the volatility of stocks. So 
hedge funds are designed to underperform in strong stock markets and outperform and, and maintain their value in weak stock markets. And so what Robert Reich was doing was looking at uh, uh, 2020 year to date. But if we back up into 2019, we saw that, that the S&P 500 was up 31% and hedge funds were up only 10. And so in January and February of this year, we saw that head, that stocks were down 8.3% and hedge funds had uh, much better performance over the same period of time, down 2.4%. But here's what's interesting. So we saw in 2019, stocks had higher highs and hedge funds had lower highs. And in 2020, stocks had lower lows and hedge funds had lower lows. But here's the punchline. If you take from January of 19 to February of 2020, the S&P was up over 20% and hedge funds were up less than 8%. And so this is what hedge funds are designed to do. And we have to be really careful that uh, even though I'm doing it now, mm -hmm. the S&P 500 or the TSX is not the benchmark for hedge funds. Hedge funds are designed to do something completely different. And whether mm -hmm. it's uh, relative value hedge funds, event-driven hedge funds, macro and managed futures, or even equity long short funds, they all have specific benchmarks, none of which are long-only stock market indices. Thanks. So if someone, if you see something coming out of the, uh, coming up, uh, because it seems like the hedge funds are still are kind of illiquid, like you have lockup periods and and not as much liquidity. Uh, it's you know just your just your sub subscription redemption period or times are, are every month or so, maybe every quarter. Some I saw like every year. Um, how and but with the equity markets, you can pivot like every minute. You can be in and out. So how how does that affect the investors' allocations and how can you best use? hedge funds or is there like a proxy you can use to get the returns without having to take up all of these uh, Ill illiquidity problems? So there's all kinds of, uh, of questions in there, James. Uh, so <laughs> on, on hedge funds, uh, we do know that uh, they're made for private markets and the majority of hedge funds now don't have uh, a lockup period, but it might take, uh, you know, 30 days of notice before redemption at the end of a calendar quarter. So we'll assume that, that you have quarterly liquidity in a hedge fund, which is very different than what you might have in stocks and bonds on any given day. Uh, some people believe that that lack of liquidity is a good thing. If we're investing in less liquid assets, hopefully we would have uh, an ability to access uh, higher returns or more interesting or complex return streams. But what we know is that the less we trade, the less money we, we lose. And so what hedge funds do is they lock us in to a, uh, a specific trade for a specific period of time. And, and maybe that's just till the end of the calendar quarter. Uh, so if we wanted to get out at the end of March, we needed to uh, submit that redemption request in February. And now if uh, we didn't submit that redemption request in February, now we're waiting until June to get out of our hedge fund. But if we go back to 2008 or 2009 during the great financial crisis, we saw that uh, somewhat similar to today, that the credit markets were, were locking up. 
And so we had these huge bid-ask spreads in, uh, in fixed income. We saw that the, the prime brokers, now that Paul knows everything about, were, uh, were pulling their, their credit lines. And what we saw is a huge disconnect in the liquidity of uh, fixed income. And so whether it was mortgage hedge funds, convertible bond hedge funds, there is a great dislocation in those prices. And so what we saw was that investors went to uh, their hedge fund managers, maybe in December of 2008, maybe in March of 2009, and they said, I want to redeem my credit hedge fund right now. And the hedge fund manager says, do you realize that credit spreads are blown out by a thousand basis points? And they say, I don't care. Give me my money back. And the hedge fund manager said, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to throw mm-hmm. up. I'm going to throw up the gates. I'm going to inhibit your ability to redeem simply because I don't think market conditions are in your best interest. I don't think now is the time to be a panic seller. And at the time, whether it was December 08 or March of 09, hedge fund investors were really upset about this. But James, you know the punchline here, right? What happened mm-hmm. by by June or September or or December of, of 2009, those credit spreads that, that were blown out came most of the way back in. And one of the best trades in a very long time was to be long credit from the bottom of the market. And so sometimes we see that limited liquidity in the in the hedge funds face is actually a, a feature or a benefit that that allows us or or restrains us from from trading at a time when uh, we shouldn't be trading. Yeah, it came with one of our uh, conferences, actually. We had Chatham House, but I can't really attribute it. But we had a large investor who was approached by a hedge fund saying, we may be gating, what do you think? Uh, and they said, please do, because this is not an, a liquid strategy. You should be preserving everybody's capital and, and uh, wealth and, and wait until this thing blows over. And then we can we can make a more kind of sober decision then. But uh, yeah, that's exactly what we've seen. But on the on the alternative side, James, uh, you know that liquid alts are uh, a new fund type in in Canada starting in uh, in January of, of 2019. And so what liquid alts does is it takes hedge fund strategies and puts them in a daily liquid uh, mutual fund wrapper that's available to all investors, regardless of their minimum investment size or their their personal net worth. And we know that about 80% of this uh, industry is in liquid strategy. So it's it's equity long, short, and macro and, and managed futures, where we know the futures exchange is trading and the stock market is trading. So we have access to, to all these trades. And uh, whether it's USITs or uh, 81-102 or the 40 Act, uh, these liquid alternative regimes have specific rules. And the, the rules are that you have a limit of 10 to 15% in, uh, in truly illiquid investments, and you have uh, a limit on leverage. And so we're seeing that it's difficult for relative value funds to launch in liquid alternatives form because these convert funds or these uh, uh, relative value mortgage funds, they might trade at three times to 10 times leverage, which is beyond the, the limits we see under 81102. But 
now we have managed futures and long short equity funds that are available in a daily liquid uh, mutual fund format. And that brings us to uh, back to the behavioral issue. Is liquidity good or is liquidity bad? Uh, so the good thing is that these uh, liquid alts are available to everyone, regardless of their minimum investment size or their, or their personal net worth, uh, which differentiates them from the, the private hedge funds. We know that the, that the strategies are relatively similar. So the return stream of long short equity or managed futures in a liquid alts version is over 80% correlated to what you get on the hedge fund side. So that's good. So you're getting qualitatively the, the same type of, of trade-off where managed futures are actually up year to date. But we've got this huge difference because when you're in the private hedge funds, you've got the the redemption notice and the, the liquidation period. And in the liquid alts, uh, there's nothing to stop you from, from panicking and, and selling uh, at the bottom of the market. And we saw just in, in three days that, that stocks could rally by 20%. Literally, we had a three-week bear market and then a three-day bull market and now we're back down again and so when you've got that kind of volatility uh liquidity might be more of a bug than a feature yeah you're right i remember when that first came out uh like actually when i started at another association back in april 2011 there was about 28 billion dollars in the traditional hedge funds in canada they didn't have the liquid alts and when um left in december 2017 it was about 33 billion, maybe not even that. So 28 to 33 over almost seven years is basically zero growth. Um, and the, 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 I guess the complaint from members back when I started there was, uh, we got to get distribution up. James, you've got to help us. We got to be, we got to get into the, the retail channel. And I was like, okay, well, gee, it'd be nice to do that. But as it is, you only had the, the private uh, structures you could use. And then in March, 2013, yeah, those revisions to, as you mentioned, the National Instrument 81102, uh, the modernization of the Canadian investment funds industry, I think it was called, but we basically just called yeah, it the like, just, And um, they, in, uh, so there were you some, can just start some, from some funds that came the exemptive relief part. to that January 3rd, uh, 2019 official date. And so that was allowed under exemptive relief from the, the Securities Commission. Uh, but basically in the last 12 to 18 months, Seven billion dollars has been raised in these funds, and which are basically sold to everybody. Uh, they do you're right; they do have daily liquidity in almost all of them. But the securities regulators were actually silent on the uh, the uh, sub, uh, subscription redemption dates and notices and periods. Uh, so there are some that have twenty day notice with quarterly liquidity on the on the redemption. So, uh, but generally they're they're um, they are liquid and and. Like Paul, you've been putting these numbers together. We'll, we'll, we've been doing it every every four months, but now we'll do it every quarter. Um, what are the what are the trends that you've seen from uh, from managers as they've reported their numbers to you? Well, as James just mentioned, the AUM for liquid alts at the end of last year was seven billion, and it was only two billion in May of twenty nineteen. So that's a huge increase. The hedge fund market alone in Canada is worth just above thirty billion. So this is a 20% increase in a hedge fund style product that's out there, which is massive. And then every quarter we were seeing new managers come in with new funds doing a liquid all strategy. And then we also see existing managers that only offered OM products in the past are now launching these prospectus based funds. 
On top of that, the public companies that have gone into liquid alts are gaining a lot of traction and they are all in. But Keith, what I want to do is throw it back to you and ask you, you had mentioned liquid alts has a correlation to hedge funds around 80%, but in a down market like we're experiencing now, would you say liquid alts and equity correlation approaches one? Not necessarily, and and so uh, we've we've spoken uh, pretty consistently about this that uh, diversification. Uh, we think there's a lot of different asset classes, but at the end of the day, there might be only two asset classes. The two asset classes are risk on and risk off, and so most people have the majority of their portfolio in risk on assets. This is equities and real estate and private equity and cryptocurrencies and credit. All of that it goes into the risk on bucket. And so there's a relatively small set of uh, strategies that go into the risk off bucket. So in the risk off bucket, we have uh, investment grade and sovereign debt. We've got macro and managed futures, hedge funds, and liquid alts. And then we've got uh, equity derivatives like long positions in VIX and in put options. So while all of the risk on strategies uh, seem to be losing money very quickly, the risk off strategies are maintaining or even growing their value. And where would you put um, the, the other types of uh, real assets like real estate, and lending are those risk on or or because they, they the real estate should hold its value over the longer term and maybe over the shorter term as well. Um, although it's not really, I guess you have rather stale marks on on uh, those types of some of those types of assets. So where where do you put those in the continuum? Well, James, uh, I'm coming out with a, with a paper uh, called "The Death of Real Estate." And the idea behind this, this paper is that the 40% drawdown in, uh, in U.S. REITs over the last three weeks actually understates the, the risk to the real estate market. And so when we look at, uh, at real estate, we could look at uh, a variety of, of strategies. And uh, at the end of last year, uh, we saw that, that vacancy rates were about 5% for multifamily, 5% for industrial, 9% for retail, and 10% for office space. So those are uh, reasonable types of, uh, of vacancy rates uh, across these property types in, in the U.S. But what's the problem? Yesterday, we reported jobless claims of 3.2 million. And so we're looking in the U.S. for a, a second quarter GDP decline of between 20% and 50% and an unemployment rate likely above 20%. But here's the problem. Uh, Bankrate.com uh, notes that 28% of American consumers have no savings and another quarter have less than three months of income in savings. So 53% of Americans can't pay their bills for three months without a job. So what happens if we're shut down for three weeks or for three months? The, the U.S. government stimulus is not sufficient to, uh, to pay for that. So I'm anticipating a 20% rental or mortgage delinquency rate in the U.S., 
within the year 2020. But it gets even worse, James. How about the retail and the restaurant industry? Shopping mall vacancies are 10%. There's 9,300 store closures in 2019. And it looks like the bankruptcies of retail and restaurant chains can triple in 2020. So in, in a good time, 80% of restaurants go out of business within five years. Just let that sink in. In good times, 80% of restaurants go out of business within five years. But Cheesecake Yikes. Factory, a 50-year-old restaurant, told their mall landlords they can't pay their rent on April 1st. Wow. Right. Just, 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 let, just let these numbers sink in. So I'm estimating a 30% vacancy rate of U.S. and retail space by year end. Now, now, James, everybody knows that people are going to have problems paying their rent. Everybody knows that that restaurants and, and retail are uh, are looking for for some trouble. But here's here's my personal view that that I don't think people are are thinking about. Right, you and I are doing lots of webinars, lots of podcasts. We're working from home. Right, the white yeah, collar workforce yeah. is entirely <laughs> shut in. Right, so James, mm -hmm. what happens? If people like working at home, what happens mm -hmm. if, if uh, your boss tells you, you know what, you're doing, you know, 80 or 100 or 120% of the productivity you were doing in the office? James, yeah. why do we need to have an office? Why do we need to be on Bay Street or Wall Street or in Silicon Valley? It's super expensive to live in Toronto or New York or San Francisco. If everybody could work at home, why do you want to live in Toronto or New York or San Francisco? Why don't, mm -hmm. why don't you move to, to Texas? Why don't you move to Florida? Someplace warm that doesn't have taxes. So, so James, yeah. what if we all work at home? What if we go to 20% office vacancies and this whole uh, trend of working remotely ends up taking place because a lot of people are talking about a v-shaped recovery the virus is going to pass us by we're all going to go back to work and act like nothing happened but the market action today is eerily similar to the 1930s mm -hmm. what if we go back to that depression mindset what if people say I went a month without going out to a restaurant. Look how much money I saved. Oh, yeah. You know, if the virus is going to come back next summer, if I don't know where my job's coming from, if I don't know where my paycheck's coming from, maybe I should be saving 20% of my pay instead of 5% of my pay. If we're afraid of spending money, if we're afraid of getting sick, We'll spend 20% less at the movie theater, 20% less at the retail store, 50% less at the restaurant. And why should we go to the mall? They're, it's so depressing now that a third of the stores are closed. Yeah, it's great for walking around, I guess, if you want to get your exercise there. But it's, there are lots of social distancing, but yeah, <laughs> not good for business. What if the millennials are right? What if finally we've, we've tripped the ESG mindset? If I work at home, there's less pollution. We see this. there's a slowing of climate change while we're all locked in. If I buy 20% less clothing, I save more money, right? There's less landfill waste. 
right? I could I could pay off my student loans faster if I cut my spending in bars and restaurants by twenty percent. Oh yeah, well we've seen that with us too. Like we, we're we're kind of assuming it'll be it could be twelve to eighteen months of this. Like people are just until everybody's vaccinated, you know, because just the Spanish flu killed more in the fall of twenty eighteen than it did in the previous flu season the year before. And uh, so if everybody's there, like we're, we're probably saving I don't know from with no travel and entertainment, uh, fifty grand a year. And so we've and webinars and and podcasts like this are basically free to do. Uh, we get great content and people can get them as they like. We've had uh, a huge amount of uptick on people actually coming to the to the webinars and, and I imagine we'll be listening to the podcast. So our whole idea, which is with our digital pivot was, okay, let's just, yeah, we'll just, we'll get into this and then we'll see what happens later on. But I'm thinking you're right. More, the more of these that I do, everyone is, is saying like a, something like what you are, like these things have fundamentally changed and real estate continues to evolve but now it's kind of it's 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 gonna have to really uh change the way there and i've been thinking about stimulus like i've seen some of the u.s one and the canadian one if you made five grand last year you can get two grand from the government each month for the next three months four months uh that's great for the workers and there's lots of money for the companies but if things fundamentally change then there will be or could be fewer restaurants or maybe more just delivering Versus, uh, you know, going out, going for a night out. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a big deal. Yeah, the millennial pivot. <laughs> oh, here we go. We got our own. Um, so, so what, seen... do you, what do you think of this, uh, Paul? Do you do you think that uh, a depression mindset could could set in with soaring unemployment and a and a reduced long term marginal propensity to consume? Because if this millennial mindset sets in, if you say I can reduce economic activity to save the planet. If that starts to take over, right, then the economy is is in for uh, for some problems. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I've had these conversations. And right now we're having these large social media hangouts with friends. And we're doing this overseas. And people are out of the city. And we're actually connecting even more. Um, the ability to actually go get your own groceries and cook at home and be able to spend your day and prep your meals and save that money is definitely huge. I remember back in 08, I was in university first year, and I just remember thinking, when I get out of this, am I going to have a job? <laughs> and like your mindset literally changed in university. And now I can only imagine what university kids are thinking right now, as well as just the millennials that went through 2008 as a student, and now we're going through as a working yeah. professional. And also, just even with those that are much older and the directors and presidents of companies that have always had this strict rule of they want to see their employees in the office, but now they don't see it. And as as this generation, we could prove our value from working from home. And if the work and if the work gets done, right, then then uh, your your boss could could realize uh, how much money they'd save on their on their real estate cost if uh, if they took less space. Yeah. And it's just purely employment engagement too. Like we've done that, that with us and, you know, it's like, Hey, can I come in a bit later because the subway or whatever is full to get here during rush hour? And I, my, my answer is always like, I don't care as long as things get done. Like that's, that's what I do. I would only come downtown a hundred days a year anyway. So, and with my, so my sons, one's in university, one's in, in, in high school and both of them are doing the university. One is more serious classes, all, all video though. And um, the high school has, 
uh, four hours of classes in the morning and he just loves it. I mean, he can't hang out with his friends, but they do a lot of Skyping and whatever, the, whatever they're doing now, TikToks and as well. So you don't necessarily have to, uh, have to go to school to get the, uh, but we'll see how, what happens with the actual learning. Um, yeah, you're right. This is in, yeah, even the public spaces like schools and, and people will still go to parks, I guess, after this, this period is over. But, uh, the online schooling, I think, will be a, a larger option as well. That uh, bodes uh, some some serious downside for for universities as well. If you're not bound to a to a specific place, you could go to uh, to an online university, and we mm -hmm. might see that um, online universities kind of vary in quality and certainly vary in price. And so, if you could find a top quality online university, that uh, you know, in America, we actually pay to go to school. Uh, if we found a uh, an online university that has higher quality and, and lower price than where we were attending, uh, there's going to definitely be be winners and, and losers there. Yeah, you're right. We pay too, but it's just not quite as much. But um, yeah, there's uh, if you can deliver. So the, the the what you gain, and now now it's like the great experiment, right? So and with our events or going to going to school, you would have that. Uh, cocktail times or interaction times, and now no one's doing it. So, you know, pumping out webinars and podcasts is great because everyone's just saved two or three hours a day on their commute, getting to like it. They still have to take care of their kids at home if they have them and that kind of stuff. But um, maybe they'll just get used to that and say, you know what, I will probably still go out maybe one day a week and with with folks for for business building or whatever. But a lot of it can can be done by by emails and uh, people will continue to fly uh, later on once things start, start coming together. Maybe the IMF will own all the airlines, but you know, we'll have, uh, we'll have uh, maybe a difference in, in how people view travel and how, how much they, they uh, how essential it is to their business. Um, so what about say on the market aspect? So there's, there's real estate, which obviously, and we've, so here, We've had gating in um, one major or two or three major major shops in Canada on their real estate funds. They said, listen, no one's getting out. That's just how it is. And these ones were open to monthly uh, redemptions or at least quarterly. They just said it's not going to happen. Uh, and then some private lending funds, especially in the mortgage area, they've gated as well. And I've had members ask me, should we do it too? Or what's the response? And my answer is kind of like, yes, you should gate because it's an illiquid asset and you don't even know what your mark is. So where's your fiduciary duty of when people are selling and at what prices? Uh, but what, what have you seen on the, the broader global aspect in, in your experience, Keith? Well, you, you have to look at an asset liability mismatch. And so in private credit, uh, you're asking for trouble if you're making three-year loans and you have quarterly liquidity to your investors. So what you need mm -hmm. to do is, is make sure that the liquidity terms for your investors are somewhat similar to the liquidity terms for your assets. Because right now, what we see on the, on the levered loan side is that uh, the double B and, and single B rated uh, levered loans are now trading in the 80s. And so if we've got a 20% haircut on the, on the public side, if you're going to force a liquidity on, on private loans, you might uh, have to take uh, an even greater haircut than, than that. So you have to look at uh, what, the, what the line of credit the fund has is, what the cash the fund has is, but you certainly don't want to be uh, 
forcing liquidations of, of assets into a market that's not really interested in buying those assets at, at full value, uh, simply to satisfy redemptions. And so to the extent that you have cash or credit available, you could uh, fund redemptions that way, but you certainly don't want to be selling loans in the, in the 80s or lower uh, to cash people out. Well, Keith, if in the markets, double Bs and single Bs are trading at 80%, then why are there blanket statements out there saying private credit is still bulletproof? Well, this is this is the question, right? So if, if REITs are down 40% and private real estate is down 4%, does that mean private real estate is less risky or they just haven't had that, that forced liquidation yet, right? And so some people say, Oh, uh, you know, private credit trades at, at par and, until uh, until the interest and principal is not coming in as as scheduled. But at the end of the day, uh, we have to look at uh, the the public markets as well. So why would I pay par for a private loan if I could buy uh, a publicly traded uh, high yield bond or levered loan uh, in in the 80s, right? And so at the end of the day. Real estate and REITs own the same assets. At the end of the day, public equity and private equity somewhat own the same assets. At the end of the day, uh, private debt and public debt are relatively similar. And so we can't say that the, that the public market took a 20, 30, 50% haircut and that, that the private markets are, are bulletproof. Because if you're going to try to, uh, to liquidate those, those private assets into, into this market, you are not going to receive uh, par. And what do you think of, uh, let's go to the other side, maybe, the of liquidity, the ETFs, because those have been, uh, the few Cassandras are saying, yeah, you know, these ETFs are great. They're growing to, I don't even know what the number is now, <laughs> trillions. And it's, it's, it's going to have its reckoning. Is this the reckoning for ETFs because the underlyings have, uh, have hit weird markets or, or, or are they just another tool for people to use and, and they do give you that liquidity? If you need it, well, what's your view on the on that side? So it's a, it's the same answer, James. It's the it's the asset liability mismatch, and so in uh, and we're looking specifically at uh, at high yield bonds here, and so there's a there's a handful of uh, of daily traded funds, whether they're ETFs or or actively managed funds. There's a there's a handful of junk bond ETFs that own more than one third of the entire junk bond universe in the US. So here's the here's mm. the problem. We're offering daily liquidity to the the holders of these daily liquid mutual funds and ETFs that own one third of this asset class. So if the people who bought one third of this asset class want to sell one third of this asset class, who are they going to sell it to, James? Yeah, if you're going to demand one day liquidity in in high yield debt, right? Who who's that marginal buyer, right? And so whenever yeah. you have the liquidity of an of an asset different than the liquidity of a liability, you could end up forcing liquidity. And now we're seeing ETFs trade at discounts. Think about that, mm -hmm. right? ETFs are supposed to be. Uh, you know, 100% of the value of the underlying portfolio, but we're seeing that either it's hard to mark the underlying assets or the selling pressure on the ETF is so intense that the, that the ETF price 
is uh, is below the supposed price of the the component assets of the portfolio. So I've heard things come from the other side that the most accurate pricing for the underlying assets are represented by the ETF, and the ETF is not a discount, but the NAV mark is actually at a premium. Because if you actually try to sell the underlying market, you'd you'd get something closer to the ETF marks. Exactly. Right. So the idea is that that the price discovery is coming from the ETF and the ETF is actually more liquid than the than the underlying bonds they hold. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's interesting. Um, yeah, because I was going to uh, go on the track of if these are mispriced and um, obviously you can get them for less or more like any hedge fund manager, anybody looking for an ARB, you're looking for a trade that that'll give you maybe not riskless returns, but at least a, a decent uh you know, cost benefit or risk benefit uh, equation out of it. So, is where are the opportunities now? Or are you seeing people just sitting on their sitting on their hands, sitting on the sidelines, saying, "Pencils down. We'll just wait and see how this plays out." Somebody, somebody else will do the irrational trading for the next while. Um, and if that's the case, what will it take to get people to get that dry powder? And whether it's PE funds investing in investee companies or people investing in in the funds and, and the, all these different markets. So it, it's interesting that that uh, private equity has $2 trillion in, in dry powder between the, the buyouts and the venture and the, and the private debt. Uh, and so you would think that now is a good time for that, that money to, to get put to work. Uh, but mm-hmm. in private credit, we talk about the difference between sponsored and unsponsored loans, where a, right. a sponsored loan is a loan made to a, to a private equity buyout, where you've got a large private equity investor uh, who owns the equity, and they're willing to put cash in to uh, support the debt in order to, uh, to save what's left of their, of their equity. And so we see, at least in the short term, that the buyout managers are actually uh, buying the the debt in their portfolio companies rather than than investing in uh, in new mm-hmm. uh, new assets. But what's interesting right. is that uh, some people think that it, that SoftBank had run up the prices of a lot of venture capital backed companies, and we were trading at mm-hmm. higher and higher multiples, and so we were looking at buying companies at 12 and 13 times a number that wasn't even EBITDA, but now SoftBank has has moved almost from a, a buyer at any price, and they could potentially be a seller at any price as SoftBank retrenches. So ironically, uh, the uh, a lot of the buyout and venture GPs sat on the sideline and let those let those commitments pile up because they didn't want to pay those uh, very high prices uh, that SoftBank was was setting as the as the marginal buyer. And now, ironically, uh, we might be putting this dry powder to work by by uh, buying these assets from uh, from SoftBank. And I'm sure there's a, a lot of interest uh, right now in the in the debt of uh, a lot of real asset companies, whether it's uh, energy debt, airline debt, uh, hotel debt, uh, you think that, that those might be trading at a, at a deep discount. And that's where, where a lot of people might be uh, wanting to put money to, to work. Because when you get uh, deep into a crisis, uh, you could lose actually uh, 100% on your, on your equity stake in a, in a highly levered company. And so now uh, what the smart money might be doing is, uh, is buying debt 
at um, who knows what the number is, 50 to 80% of par. And not only uh, do you uh, potentially have that pickup from 50 or 80% back to par or whatever the recovery value is going to be, but if you wipe out the equity in that company, now the equity comes to the, to the debt holders. And so now uh, a lot of the action could be in these uh, very distressed companies rather than uh, making uh, billion-dollar market caps of uh, unprofitable tech companies. Wow. Yeah. The typical vulture play of getting the, uh, the junior debt. And then if you make, you can either make a ton of it or you can, if you lose, you end up with the equity. You got to do the workout in the equity, but if the PE shops were already in there, then um, it just allows them. Basically it's like uh, selling a put at uh, some lower price where they got to, they got to kind of buy into the equity. That's interesting. So maybe one other question on extremely distressed sectors like the airlines i saw numbers but 113 billion dollars and it might be larger uh my quit before of the imf you know basically having world air uh what do you think is going to happen to the airlines are all the countries going to bail out maybe one or two players in their respective uh areas or regions or is it gonna like i don't even know what's gonna happen there and what happens to the regionals uh and uh and even airports which many pension funds have invested in over the years they bought entire airports and, and how, what do you think is going to happen with those investments? They can't exactly change their raison d'etre um, on a dime uh, if, if air travel really does slow down. So, so what I hope happens, James, is we, uh, we kind of roll back these, uh, these baggage fees and these change fees. So I actually called an airline yesterday and obviously I'm not flying to, uh, to Los Angeles uh, this weekend. And uh, so I waited until almost the, the day of my flight and I called them and I said, I'd like to reschedule my, my flight from, uh, from March till September, because that's when we're doing Alts LA, you're invited on September 11th. Mm -hmm. And they said, not only will we give you a ticket to Los Angeles in September, we will do it without a change fee. And are you ready for this? We're going to give you the difference as a credit toward a future flight. Whoa. That, wow. <laughs> right. So wow. That, that's what's going to happen, right? Uh, everybody's going to be like Southwest Airlines and try and, uh, and treat their, their passengers more humanely. So we'll take that extra six rows of seats out of the plane. We'll, we'll have better social distancing. We'll have uh, lower bag fees, lower cancel fees. Uh, that's, that's, what, that's what should happen. Uh, but but the um, I, I think it was Warren Buffett uh, who says that uh, the the profitability of the airline history is negative since inception. So investors should have shot down the Wright brothers and and kind of uh, uh, put a nix on that on that whole industry. So it's a it's a capital intensive business, and uh, you have no control of your cost. And so what airlines should be doing right now is locking in uh, twenty dollar crude oil as as far as the eye can see. Uh, but but they might uh, be constrained on their balance sheets from from doing that because they spent a lot of money on uh, on stock buybacks. Uh, so we know that uh, that airlines go bankrupt on a, on a regular basis, but strangely, there's always a new startup airline, uh, and so it's an industry without a lot of uh, competitive discipline. Uh, and when you don't have control over your revenue and you don't have control over your expenses, it's really hard to plan in the in the long run. Yeah, I had something similar from another trip I was going to make to San Francisco this week, and 
I got a text and they said, oh, your flight, you would like to cancel your flight and just text one if, if so. And then I said, well, yeah. And then it was, okay, you're done. We're going to give you a full, full, uh, full uh, refund. So you're right there. They've really changed. And even around the world ticket I had, they, they refunded that a hundred percent. So you should be doing that. Well, I guess you shouldn't be doing it all the time normally, but it, it was, uh, it was getting kind of weird. I just worried about the people that have, uh, elite status, if you're, are you going to lose that because you haven't flown it, or you just re, uh, roll that into the next year? <laughs> That's probably on your mind too. The only, Those are called first world problems, James. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, this has been a great uh, survey of all alternatives, uh, hedge funds, ETFs, uh, liquid alts, private equity, real estate, uh, lending uh, from a master in the business, Keith, and uh, someone a bit newer, Paul. Uh, so thank thank you both for this. This is uh, fantastic. We'll look forward to our next podcast. We're, uh, I think we have about 20 or 30 of these lined up over the next few weeks to uh, to record and, and edit. And uh, also our webinars. So we've made the full pivot until further notice. And uh, thanks again. And uh, we'll talk to you guys again soon. Uh, thanks, James. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, awesome thanks. talking to you, Keith. Thanks, James.